0: Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information.
1: Valkyrie Funds invites investors to enter the digital asset economy with the Valkyrie Bitcoin Strategy ETF, available to purchase through NASDAQ ticker BTF. Consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expense before investing. This and other information is in the prospectus at www.valkyrie-funds.com. btf Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Investing involves risk and potential loss of capital. Distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc. All right. Joining me this week will be Tom
2: Lydon, founder and CEO of ETF Trends. Now, I'm pretty sure just about everyone at least heard the buzz around Kathy Wood's CNBC appearance last week. Uh, Kathy always seems to draw a crowd whenever she speaks. And this was a particularly long interview with a lot of sound bites. Uh, CNBC actually hit their uh, Zoom time limit of 40 minutes. But the bottom line is, with the performance challenges facing Arc recently, there's a lot of debate over whether they're a one-hit wonder or whether they can get get things turned around. And so we're going to hear from Tom on that this week, who Tom himself actually interviewed Kathy for nearly an hour recently. They didn't hit their Zoom time limit. Uh, This is out on YouTube. Everyone should go watch this. It has like 50,000 views. But in any event, we'll talk about that. And then we'll also spend a few minutes discussing ETF performance and flows more broadly this year. Uh, we are currently in an environment where not much is working in the financial markets. Obviously, there are a lot of concerns around inflation and what the Fed will do. We have geopolitical tensions with Russia and Ukraine. So Tom and I will uh, bat all of that around as well. I'll then be joined by Michael Natel, of Intermediary Distribution at Northern Trust Asset Management, who, if you're not familiar with Northern Trust, they offer the FlexShares lineup of ETFs. Currently, 31 ETFs, nearly $21 billion in assets. They are a top 20 ETF issuer. And going back to the topic of inflation, FlexShares offer several ETFs that could certainly be viewed as good inflation hedges. So Michael's going to highlight those. And then I also want to have a much broader conversation around inflation hedging overall and how investors should think about this because I I do think there are some very interesting behavioral aspects to this in terms of when do you hedge? Should you already own inflation hedges in your portfolio? Is it too late now if you haven't hedged? So we'll find out how Michael and uh, Northern Trust view all of that. And then to close this week, always one of my favorite guests Christian Magoon, founder and CEO of Amplify ETFs, who themselves actually just launched an inflation hedging ETF. It's called the Amplify Inflation Fighter ETF, ticker IWIN. Uh, So we'll spotlight that. Obviously fits right into the theme this week. And then Amplify also offers the most popular blockchain ETF, the Amplify Transformational Data Sharing ETF, ticker BLOCK. You already know we're covering that. And they have another ETF that I feel like is flying under the radar a a little bit. Its assets have quadrupled over the past year, now over a billion dollars. The Amplify CWP Enhanced Dividend Income ETF, ticker DEVO. We'll discuss that one as well. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Dracy, or you can go to ETFprime.com.
1: Let's start with ETF Trends, Tom Lydon. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights.
3: This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, $600 billion in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes.
2: Tom, thanks for joining me. How are you doing today? Hey, Nate, how are you? Just another boring week,
3: right? (laughs) I was thinking the uh, same
2: thing. No shortage of things for us to talk about. And uh, look, you and I are going to dive back into this ARC and Kathy Wood discussion this week. I just find this to be such a fascinating topic. And I do think you can offer a unique perspective, just given that you have interviewed Kathy in depth recently. However, let's start with ETF flows and performance this year, because I know once we get into ARC, uh, the, the the clock's going to run out on us. So, uh, so look, it is interesting right now. And I tweeted this out last week. You may have seen this. If you look back over the trailing six months or so, every single major asset class is negative except gold and commodities. Every major asset class. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about Uh, you know, growth versus value or or, or long-short strategies. I'm just saying if you look broadly at U.S. stocks, international stocks, emerging markets, broad bonds, all of those are negative. So let's start with that. This is clearly a different environment for investors. Nothing is really working right now. What are you hearing from advisors? Because at some
3: point, clients start asking questions, right? Where are uh, my returns? Well, exactly. There's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of pressure on advisors. And as you said, these are kind of unprecedented times, Nate, when both stocks and bonds are declining. And what we're seeing basically is advisors have changed the construction of their client portfolios probably more substantially than they have in a long period of time. Uh, Inflation's on the rise, rates are on the rise as well. And with that, there are major shifts that are going on. So Let's, let's just start with the 60-40 allocation. You and I have talked about this before. Many advisors have shifted over to 70-30 or even 80-20, reducing their exposure to bonds and, and also pushing money into short duration or cash. And then the other thing that I think you and I would have fun talking about is a huge amount of money went into high-yield bonds in the last five years as there wasn't as much a threat of higher interest rates or, or rising rates, but at the same time there's that demand for yield. And then all of a sudden, uh, advisors and their clients find themselves with a pretty risky asset class. I mean, JNK, for example, is down already 5% year-to-date. Um, I th- I think a lot of people caught themselves blind. What would you say?
2: Well, i never going to Monday morning quarterback. I have said this all along. I have always viewed – junk bonds, that the high-yield space is very equity-like in terms of its uh, risk profile. And to your point, we are seeing credit spreads uh, widen now. Look, you're going to get equity-like volatility and and potential downside if you're trafficking in high-yield. So I've never, if you look at a standard 60-40 portfolio, I've often thought that you should include the high yield bond portion in the in the equity side, which some people may laugh at that, but that's how I've always viewed it. That's that's not where you want to, uh, you know, have a have the a uh, uh, ballast in your portfolio and, and try to generate some stable income. But you know, look, you look across the board. I want to give you a few uh, returns here from from some popular ETFs. So SPY, the Spider S and P 500 ETF. That's down nearly 9% year-to-date. These are all of uh, as of yesterday. QQQ, the Invesco NASDAQ 100 ETF, down 14% year-to-date. The iShares Core MSCI EFA ETF, Developed International, down 5%. Uh, emerging Markets, the iShares uh, Core Emerging Markets ETF, IEMG, down 1%. Uh, then you look to bonds, the Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF, down 4% year-to-date. So I was just talking about bonds being a ballast, but uh, down 4%. TLT, the iShares 20-year Treasury ETF, that's down nearly 7%. Now, what has worked? Well, I I mentioned that at the top. in the Invesco Diversified Commodity ETF, PDBC, that's up 12% year-to-date. Gold, GLD, that's up 4% year-to-date. So it really gives you an idea that if you are not in uh, the commodity space, you're having a real challenging time in, in your portfolio right now.
3: Well, I think the key is, as you know, as an advisor, is allocation and diversification. And Nate, we've talked about this. If all you did was have allocation to SPY and AGG over the past 15 years, you would have done great. But uh, as advisors, we need to diversify more. And that's really, really key and critical. Your points on commodities are really key. And I think this is the main thing that people are talking about today. This is the main concern among the advisor community, which is inflation. Even as we see the saber rattling going on over in Russia and Ukraine, more people are concerned about how to fight inflation and if this is going to affect the Fed and the Fed action coming. But even if the Fed decides to go 50 basis points or 75 basis points, do you feel that it's going to affect food prices or gas prices or labor prices or that type of thing? We may be in a period where it's going to take a lot of fire to, uh, let's say, cool off what we're seeing in, in, in this inflationary period right now, a period that we haven't seen really in our lifetimes when you and I were riding around on banana bikes, right?
2: Well, and I'm going to talk about that here in a little bit with FlexShares' Michael Natal. But I think we all know, I mean, the Fed's in a tough spot right now. They have painted themselves into a corner. And I, I think clearly the markets are, everything's a little precarious right now. If they get too aggressive in raising rates and running off their balance sheet, that obviously poses some, some risk to the financial markets, pulling liquidity out of the system. But on the other hand, they can't just let inflation run rampant. And I think adding to that is that we are in the midterm election year. And, you know, inflation is going to be a hot-button topic. So it's real tricky. Now, clearly the Fed is supposed to be apolitical. I'm not saying they're looking at that part of the equation. But that doesn't mean they're not getting pressure from some different places. And one of their mandates is to, uh, you know, keep prices stable. So they, know, they have to pay attention to that. Attention
3: to that. No, you're, you're so right. And I think the big question now is, if I go into commodity-based strategies right now, am I going to miss it? Um, I don't think you're going to be uh, punished for that. And I, I think your clients are going to be in a situation where they can understand that because they're feeling it themselves. So one other point is it tends to be that gold is a second-half player, and it's only had single digit advances in the last six months where other commodities have been in the 20 or 30 percent area. So that's another thing to consider. If we start to see gold really pick up, it doesn't mean that this move in the commodity space is over, and that's just another thing to consider. On top of that, energy. I mean, we may see in a matter of weeks Oil being 100 bucks a barrel, I don't think we thought we'd see that in a long time. And if that's sustainable because we've got geopolitical risk, that might be another way to diversify portfolios. These are things that advisors are telling us today.
2: By the way, I have to mention that digital gold, Bitcoin, down 18% year-to-date, so not really that uh, store of value at this point in time. Tom, I do want to talk, Ark, but let me just ask you briefly, considering everything we just talked about, is there anything noteworthy standing out to you in ETF flows so far this year? And I know it's early, but I do think two months is enough to start making some inferences about how advisors and investors are positioning. Is there anything standing out to you?
3: Well, really quick, it doesn't look like we're going to hit the number right now that we hit last year of over $900 billion. We're on pace for $700 billion. Some of the big things, as most people logically can point out, we're seeing net redemptions in fixed income. Uh, that's not a surprise. What is surprising is we're starting to see more people diversify overseas. Uh, 70, uh, 75, almost 75% of what we're seeing in US equity ETF allocations we're seeing in international allocations. And then also logically, we're seeing a huge amount into commodities, more money in commodities this, ye- this year than we saw all of last year. And a lot of that is because of the redemptions that we saw in GLD are actually coming back $3, uh, $3 billion already coming into GLD this year.
2: Well, and again, to what we just spoke to, commodities and gold are working this year. So I would expect to see flows there. A couple of interesting points you made on the international side. I guess that makes sense as well. Just when you think about the performance figures I walked through earlier, even though international stocks are down, they are still relative outperformers. And I, I think there's a lot of people who think that international stocks in general are more fairly valued uh, than the U.S. So that doesn't uh, surprise me. People are looking that direction. The, the other thing I'll note on the fixed income flows, th- this is going to be fascinating for me to watch this year because fixed income inflows have been a big story over the past couple of years, of course, especially after the Fed came in in March of 2020. But we are now seeing outflows. And if, if we continue to see rates creep up, uh, to, to what we were talking about earlier, that 60-40 portfolio maybe doesn't look so good, and it'll be interesting to see how investors hang in there with, with their fixed income allocation. I'll also note I saw a, uh, a great piece from Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas last week where he actually suggested that a lot of the outflows that we've seen this year have been driven by mutual funds. And th- the reason for that is these big redemptions that mutual funds are now seeing on the bond side – these, these managers, they use ETFs as their liquidity sleeve. So they're actually the ones selling ETFs to meet investor redemptions right now, right? They want to have an easy way to, to meet investor redemptions. ETFs serve that purpose. And so he thinks that that's where a, a decent chunk of the selling pressure is coming from. I thought that was an interesting point. I don't know yeah. if you have, have any thoughts on that.
3: Absolutely. When you look under the hood, especially in some of these big bond mutual funds, A lot of them have holdings in ETFs. Again, just another great point that ETFs have become the go-to area, even for mutual fund portfolio managers, right? (laughs) All
2: right, Tom, let's move on and talk uh, ARK Invest now. And if you recall, you joined me a little over a month ago, and we talked about the recent performance challenges here and how investors might react to all of this. Since that time, things just have not gotten any better. So the ARK Innovation ETF, ARKK, that's their flagship ETF, that's now down nearly 60% from its February 2021 high. It was down 50% when you and I last chatted. Now, I I think there's a lot we can discuss here, but I I do want to start by playing a clip for you. So as I mentioned at the top... Kathy Wood was on CNBC last week with Scott Wapner, uh, which, by the way, apparently CNBC doesn't have a paid Zoom account, or at least they weren't using it. Everybody was blaming Kathy on that, but it was CNBC that had the uh, the little Zoom timer pop-up box on live TV. <laughs> but uh, in any event, Kate, uh, Kathy basically said judging her performance over a short time period is unfair. Take a listen to this.
4: We're seeing a lot of analysis of our performance out there which uh, is cherry-picking, you know, dates. And I've just given to you what has happened. Uh, And there's endpoint sensitivity to these uh, dates. If you look at our returns on a five-year rolling basis, and what I mean by that is take monthly returns and do five-year rolling averages, we have outperformed both the S&P and the NASDAQ 100% of the time. If you take the same on a two-year basis, I have those numbers here, uh, we have outperformed uh, the S&P 500 90% of the time and uh, NASDAQ 81% of the time. We've just been through uh, a a significant downturn, a correction relative to the peak. And we do believe that uh, innovation is in bargain basement territory.
2: Okay, Tom, so you heard Kathy there saying, Look, she thinks investors are cherry-picking dates when looking at her performance. She wants to be judged over five-year periods, which I'll say I agree with that. I think most investments should be judged over a longer period of time. Uh, However, the fact is ARKK is down nearly 60% over the past year, right? 60%. So people are going to talk about that. Now, let let me give you one other comment she made, and then I'll pause here because I want to hear your thoughts on all this. She said, quote, our biggest concern is that uh, our investors turn what we believe are temporary losses into permanent losses. So obviously, she doesn't want investors fleeing the fund right now. So, so Tom, I'll ask you, what should investors and advisors in ARC ETFs be doing right now? Should they be worried about one year of uh, poor performance or no?
3: Well, first of all, if you were an advisor or an educated investor, you probably— You can't avoid the story, you can't avoid the research, you can't avoid um, all the backup information that Kathy and the team provide, which is innovation, disruptive technology, and stocks that you don't normally find a high weighting in the major market indexes. It's outside of what you'd see in the QQQs or the SPY to hope enhance the portfolio over time. And and rightly so, she said, hey, it takes some time, so you gotta give me five years. She's always said that. The, the important thing here, I think, is the the allocation and the timing. So let's take the worst case scenario. Let's say you're an advisor and you did a 10% allocation to ARKK in February of last year, which would have been the absolute top. And I asked Kathy this, I said, Kathy, what if you were sitting across from an advisor and, and the advisor was in that situation, what would you tell them? And her answer basically was, look, if, if you bought it with the premise that you know we've we've talked about, would you buy it for five years? It's an allocation that's outside of the major market indexes, and you liked it for those reasons, and now many of those same stocks are half off, why wouldn't you just average up to that? original allocation, which as an advisor, Nate, makes all the sense in the world. But what we tend to get caught up in is the media and the social that wraps around it. I mean, we, we've we discussed the fact that there aren't that many rock stars in the ETF space. And she's been one of the pre, preeminent people in the ETF space that's helped ETFs in a big, big way, coming out as an active manager, being totally transparent at an early stage, that was really, really innovative. At the same time, she's getting a lot of barbs. So when you, when you look at what she's offering, it's a different type of strategy. And looking at the numbers, especially from a volatility standpoint, if you balance it as part of the portfolio, that volatility actually works for the overall portfolio. I, I would just say this, we have a lot of advisors that we know over time have invested in ARK ETFs, and they're staying with it because they haven't allocated 20 or 30% for their clients. They're putting maybe 5% or 7%. And and what that does over time, it gives them confidence that the next fang stocks may come out of an arc ETF as opposed to the QQQs or the SPY.
2: I think those are all excellent points. I I agree with all of that. The one counter that I might have would just be, in terms of being judged over these five year periods, I think one fair question for investors to ask is whether the markets that we've witnessed over the past, say, six or seven years are what markets will look like going forward. Now, everybody knows my crystal ball is broken I have no idea but I do think there's a decent chunk of investors that would say hey everything that we've seen here over these past several years that's not the environment we're going to be in moving forward. Now how how does that impact innovative technology in in that area of the market we we'll, we'll see but I think that's a fair question to raise. I'll I'll give you one other counter and that's a, I 100% agree with you that ark ETFs are used to supplement core portfolios. You and I have talked about that multiple times uh, on the podcast, but I want to play one other quick clip here. And, you know, look, if you listen to Kathy here, she's actually really going after benchmarks like the S&P 500. And again, I I can't stay off Twitter. I sent out another tweet last week saying that I thought that that's a a mistake. I feel like ARK's audience already wants something different than the S&P 500 to what you were just saying. She doesn't need to get investors to move out of the S&P and into ARKK, she needs investors to move out of other active strategies. Take a listen to this.
4: Today, we have investors doing the opposite of what they did during the late 90s. They are running for the hills. It's risk-off because of inflation, interest rates, and the hills are their benchmarks. So they're running to the past. And if we're right, and the disruptive innovation that is evolving is going to disintermediate, disrupt the traditional world order, those benchmarks are where the risk is, not, not our portfolios. So,
2: so Tom, am I reading too much into that? I just think for ARK, um, I don't think it's in their best interest to compare themselves to the big benchmarks. I, actually, I'm not sure that's good for any active manager over the long run. But I, I just feel like Kathy should be comparing ARK ETFs to other high active share funds. Do you have any quick thoughts on that?
3: Well, when you look at the overall uh, general allocation for an advisor or even a, a self-directed investor and the high correlation to the S&P 500, Nate, you know it's huge. And they, and it's been really tough to beat the S&P. But the high concentration in a few stocks has worked well as long as those stocks have worked well. What if they don't work well anymore? I, I think it's a a little bit of her way of saying it's important to diversify. It's important to think differently than just those major indices. And, and just to throw another thing in, um, there were some charts going on around Twitter comparing the recent decline to the dot-com stocks in, in the 1990s. And um, I think we're going to see more of that coming if we do see more declines. It, it is an overlay of those charts. But in all fairness, if you go and look at those underlying stocks that really didn't have earnings at all in the 1990s, it was all kind of a hope and a prayer, compared to the high conviction stocks over at Arc, where there really are real earnings um, and they're real valuations right now, uh, that's something to consider, too. It, look, Nate, in the end, it's really fun for us to talk about it, but uh, for those that are smart about allocation and have participated, many have participated over years. Uh, there, there's been most people who've come in prior to that February decline. And the fact that they've been able to keep people around for a period of time, I, th- I think is right. And I think they're also seeing, they've actually had net inflow so far this year, which is tremendous, which means that a lot of people are, um, let's just say, Understanding the fact that outside major market indicators, there are opportunities if you can select uh, those types of advisors or those types of money managers that have high conviction in certain areas.
2: Yeah, I think it speaks to the fact that ARC does have real staying power. I, I, I brought up this question, are they a one hit wonder? Or are they going to be around? Is this sustainable? And I think what we've seen so far in the face of this performance, that this is absolutely sustainable. The other thing that I'll mention, to, to your point, look, Kathy Wood clearly has marketing mastered. She, she definitely runs circles around me. So if she wants to be out on CNBC and... and uh, you know compare herself to the s and p five hundred who am I to say that 's a bad idea and I thought it was funny that whole uh i 'm probably making too much of it the whole zoom thing, so Arc. Uh, they sent out a tweet. They, say, they said uh, CNBC may have a 40-minute time horizon, but ARC's is five years. Right. Thanks for having <laughs> us on, CNBC. We're happy to pay for your upgraded Zoom account. You can't be a knowledge worker without it. So there you go. That speaks to the uh, the, the marketing. But, Tom, we're going to have to leave it there. Always so much fun uh, chatting about this stuff. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. That was Tom Leiden, founder and CEO of ETF Trends.
0: This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainably related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of the progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risk, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC.
2: My next guest is Michael Nattell, head of intermediary distribution at Northern Trust Asset Management, who, of course, they offer the FlexShares lineup of ETFs, currently 31 ETFs, about $21 billion in assets. That includes several ETFs that could certainly be viewed as potential inflation hedges, which will be our topic of conversation this week. Michael is now on the line with me from Chicago. Michael, welcome back to the podcast.
5: Nate, good morning. Thanks so much for having me. It's one of my favorite things to do is join the ETF Store
1: Podcast.
2: Well, excellent. And and look, inflation is clearly a hot topic for investors right now. I might even say this is the single biggest concern out there. Now, I'll also say investors probably want inflation hedges in a portfolio before there's meaningful inflation, right? And, and we'll get into that. I think there's a huge behavioral aspect here, which I just find fascinating. But I want to start with how Northern Trust is viewing everything right now. What's sort of the base case on inflation? Is the thought that this is real? Is this transitory? What's the overall thought process? Nate,
5: great question. Uh, first, I think we all should admit that uh, no one really has an exact answer on where inflation is going to be. Okay. If we look at where experts are on predicting, you know, where inflation will be, interest rates, um, that, that history is not very good. That being said, I think we can have some very intelligent, you know, hypothetical or hypothesis points that we can make. And so Northern Trust has been somewhat uh, non consensus in our view that uh, inflation is transitory. Uh, that being said, that's being tested especially after the January print that I think we're all aware of now at nearly uh, at 7.5%. And I think we all need to pause for a moment to understand how large a number that was. We've got to go back to 1982 to see a number that, that was that large, right? And so for some people, it's the first time they're feeling this level of inflationary pressure in their investment lifetime and i think last point before uh, we go back to our discussion is this is probably the price that we could end up paying for such a quick recovery coming out of you know the beginning of the pandemic back to march and april of 2020
2: okay so given that i mean that that's interesting so if there is this non consensus view that perhaps inflation could be transitory but also to your point we are seeing these these high inflation prints right now and given the fact that nobody does have a crystal ball, I mentioned that in the last segment, I certainly don't have one. Nobody knows exactly how this is all going to play out. I'd love to hear you talk more about how Northern Trust is actually counseling clients right now on portfolio positioning and not from a uh, specific product perspective. I uh, w- We'll come back to that. I want to get into some flexures ETFs in a moment, but I'm just talking higher level. Like, what are you communicating to clients given the the, the base case right
5: now? Yeah, well, you mentioned inflation being the topic du jour right now. I think there's there's two other things that are in there as well, but we'll stick with inflation. But I think you know inter, interest rate uh, pressure as well, um, and you know sprinkled in with a little geopolitical tension. I mean, it's a it's a tough uh, environment right now. That being said, uh, we are still at Northern Trust advising clients to be risk on, and we take a look at uh, a strategic portfolio. And I know we'll get into products in a little bit, but. We look at a 60-40 portfolio on a strategic basis. That's five years for Northern Trust. And then we also, and then we juxtapose that with a 12-month view, which is a tactical view. Um, and right now, we're about 11% overweight to risk. And we'll talk about where we're feeding that, but I think the reason for that is, is that we believe there's still some really good things going on in the economy. If you look at earnings season, it's been outstanding, across not across the board, but in several sectors it's been very good. Uh, we think uh, the Fed will continue to uh, be accommodative, although they're going to have to raise rates. And so we've strengthened our risk case around inflation from the Fed overreacting, thats let's say that's 90 days ago, to now the Fed being more hawkish and the fed has been very direct in their desire to cool economic activity that's that's back to my point about the the uh the environment actually being very positive positive. and so we're expecting a few rate hikes three by mid-year exactly but after that it becomes a little more cloudy and so uh, we're going to be surprised that the fed actually accomplishes the let's say half a dozen rate hikes that are currently priced into the market But all of that feeds back into our view that we still think um, having risk in this environment makes sense. And we take a look at things over a tactical time period of 12 months and a strategic time period of five years. So we're advising clients to take on risk.
2: But just to be clear, as it pertains to inflation hedging in particular, do you view that as strategic in nature or is that more tactical?
5: Yeah, great, great question. And this is back to our our point about um, how we should be thinking about inflationary hedging over a long period of time. And we believe that should be strategic. Let me give you an example of this just basically personally. I, I guarantee you, um, Nate, you and I probably uh, look at insurance the same way, right? When we drive a car, a boat, we go to our home, nobody springs a leak in their boat or you know, gets in a fender bender and says, you know what, now i got to go out and get insurance on that car or boat. We buy it strategically uh, to make sure that we have protection – for that, um, for that asset. But yet sometimes when we look at things in our portfolio from an inflation perspective, we get a little more, we get too tactical. We should be thinking about these, these things strategically. And so we think about inflation hedging at Northern Trust across a, a short, intermediate, and long-term hedging cycle. And you know, short-term, you think more of things like, like TIPs they're more correlated on the short end of, the, uh, of things. In the intermediate term, that would be natural resources or global listed infrastructure and other real assets. And then long-term, of course, I think we're all aware, those would be uh, longer-term equities. So we are currently overweight to inflation hedges in the intermediate and long-term, whether that's um, developed and, and uh, domestic equities, uh, as well as natural resources, which have been outstanding obviously in the first uh, six to seven weeks of the year, but even going back over the last 18 months have been very good.
2: I want to come back to your insurance analogy. I I think investors hear this quite often that obviously you want home insurance before your house burns down. You want car insurance before you get into a car accident. I think everybody knows that, but when it comes to inflation hedges, and I would say other portfolio hedges as well, that's not always the viewpoint from investors, and I think this gets us down the path to the behavioral side of the equation, which I always find fascinating. Always love discussing. I'm curious from from your standpoint, what do you think is going on behaviorally there? Why why do most people look and go, yes, I need car insurance, or I need house insurance, but they don't view, say, an inflation hedge the same way in their portfolio?
5: Yeah, that's a good question, Nate, and, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this too. Uh, I, I think it's it's because we we tend to take a look at. Um, Every part of our portfolio. Sometimes this is this is a generalization, but I think we tend to look at every part of our portfolio and see what we can squeeze out of it, right? Like we we look at everything uh, like we would uh, a sports car, right? How fast does that sports car go from zero to sixty? That's a number that's that's really important when you're looking at a sports car. Well, not every piece of your portfolio is a sports car, right? And if if some of it is supposed to be Risk control, for lack of a better term, well, maybe we should be asking different questions. And to um, you know, to keep my car analogy going, if if the risk control assets are more like uh, a minivan or a, a station wagon that's supposed to be safer, maybe we should be asking about you know, what are the airbags that are in this car, or how does this car perform uh, perform uh, during a, a car crash, and how safe is it? So I think that there's some behavioral things there where we look at well. You know, equities have performed X and it's yielding Y. And so this is what I can expect. But sometimes with uh, some of those risk control assets, and we believe that inflationary hedges are exactly that, we should be asking different questions. And some of those should be, um, what are those portions of our portfolio going to do when uh, markets aren't running at uh, 60 miles an hour? And right now, these last few weeks, we've seen that. So let me give you a quick example just uh, of one asset class. Look at natural resources, and obviously energy has been moving, but it's not just energy. It's it's agriculture. It's uh, metals and miners. Take a look at what that has done in the first seven weeks of the year. Most of those products in that uh, area are positive, and most of them are positive double-digit percentage. When you've got the S&P down over 7%, I mean, that's a big difference. That's how we should be thinking about those risk control and inflationary hedging portions
2: of our portfolio. So so Michael, even drilling down a little bit further there, I mean, assuming investors do want to own strategic inflation hedges in their portfolios, what should be some of the broad considerations? I mean, is it as simple as looking at how some of these asset classes have performed in prior inflationary environments, right, looking at their correlation to inflation? Or are there some other considerations there? I I, I thought the example you just gave in terms of, you know, airbags in a car, and, and looking at some of these other features are relevant here.
5: Yeah, I think you hit on the two that are very, very important. What's performed well during previous inflationary periods? Um, And if we look back to the last few years, uh, last few inflationary periods, uh, developed market equities, real estate, high yield, natural resources, even tips have all been good performers. But conversely, uh, we've seen investment grade bonds and emerging uh, market bonds struggle. And, and I also think, to your other point, is what do correlations look like? But you've got to you gotta be careful here because every period has different um, uh, inputs, right? But there are some things to glean from what are the correlations there. And you've got to be careful along the uh, time horizon. That's why Northern Trust looks at inflationary hedging across those short, intermediate, and long-term hedges that I mentioned before because – things can move around and we need to make sure that we're going to be nimble across that time period.
2: All right. Well, let's talk about a few FlexShares ETFs that could serve as potential inflation hedges. And I want to start with actually a pair of ETFs. The FlexShares IBOX three-year target duration tips index fund, ticker symbol TDTT. And then there's also a five-year target duration tips ETF, ticker symbol TDFF. Just walk through some of the basics here. How are these positioned?
5: Yeah, great, great question. I think the biggest, uh, uh positioning item here for our TDTT and TDTF, uh, tips products is that we are targeting duration. That's actually the T and the D in the first two letters of the ticker symbol, targeted duration. And the key here is, is that in an inflationary environment, right, if you're going to be buying, uh, tips, one of the largest risks, not the only risk, but one of the largest risks is duration risk that could um, erode from your uh, position. And what we have tried to do with these two products is target duration because we, we realize a couple of things. One, no one is going to be uh, investing 100% to targeted duration tips. So it has to find a way to slot into a portfolio. Typically what we've seen is anywhere from 2 to 6% into products like this. And if that's the case, you are having to manage as a portfolio manager, as a financial advisor, as an individual investor, you're having to manage your duration. And what easier way to do that than to know exactly where the product that you are slotting into that portfolio is? How hard is it to, um, to go the other way on this, Nate, is when you're buying a product that is moving around in duration and you're trying to manage that risk, it becomes that much harder. So TDTT and TDTF help to do that at a three-year target, that's the T, and a five-year target, that's the F.
2: The question that I have for you is how sensitive are these ETFs to actual changes in inflation compared to, say, a longer-duration TIPS ETF? In other words, are investors sacrificing inflation protection at all by shortening up duration?
5: No, I, I don't think that's the case. I think what you have to look at is, where where is your risk, um, where are you on the on the terms of a risk spectrum, okay? And when you think about right now uh, where we've seen most of our clients' uh, position right now, they've been buying uh, the three-year tips product more often than the five-year tips product. But again, it's like in a probably a 60-40 to 65-35 split, so it's not overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But I think what what people have looked across that spectrum is, where do I want to be uh, on my duration targeting? And how can I then manage that risk if I believe that rates are going to move quicker than the market does? And so that's why we wanted to give two um, two targets there. Some people have asked us, by the way, Nate, well, how come there isn't a seven-year uh, inflation target? Uh, I'm mean, sorry, duration target. Our research has shown that that five- to seven-year move was not uh, significant enough to have another product. And we've just noticed that there is a difference between three and five. And so I think going back to your original question, if I've answered it correctly is you're not giving up that much from an inflationary um, a correlation um, because I think we're, we're targeting duration to take away that risk. And these are excellent products on the short term inflationary hedging uh, part of the equation.
2: Yeah. I mean, the way I would view these is that you, you are sacrificing some yield here. But again, the the, the trade off for that is you're also shortening up duration. And in this environment, not having that duration risk is obviously something that investors are, <laughs> are concerned about. So uh, Michael, yeah, and just, they, go not ahead. To, yeah.
5: Not to jump in there, but not to cut you off, but just one, this is a really key point. You mentioned you're sacrificing some uh, income for uh, duration risk, right? Duration risk control. And I would say to you that at a portion of a portfolio, you know, below 10%, there are plenty of other parts of your portfolio where you can find that income stream. And this is the portion where you're saying to yourself, I want to make sure that I'm controlling risk. And I don't want to be asking the zero to 60 question, which is the income part of this. in this this part of the portfolio. So I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's a really key point.
2: Yeah, and it's something I actually mentioned in the prior segment in terms of how you view risk in your fixed income allocation. And is this an area you should be taking a lot of risk? Or is this more a ballast in a portfolio and generate, uh, you know, I'm going to quote unquote, safer yield versus really getting uh, risky, both on the credit side and, and With duration risk. Uh, Michael, just a couple of minutes left. You mentioned natural resources earlier. I I have to bring up the FlexShares Morningstar Global Upstream Natural Resources Index Fund, ticker symbol G U N R Gunner. This is actually your most popular ETF. It's pretty remarkable. I I was looking. So assets in this ETF have essentially doubled over the past year to nearly $7.5 billion. But this does hold the stocks of companies involved in the commodity space, which I think many obviously view the commodity space as a good place to be in an inflationary environment. Just, just very briefly explain the, uh, the, the basics of this ETF.
5: Yeah, thank you, um, Nate, for bringing this one up. There, there's two things to take away from this. First is balanced, and the second is upstream. Balanced because we're not energy heavy. Most products that we're competing against um, have a higher positioning in energy. Ours is capped at 30, 30%. Um, and then the upstream portion is that we found that the best hedge against inflation is actually owning the natural resource. That's the best way to do it. But it's really hard to store barrels of oil in your backyard or bars of gold underneath your in your bunker, right? Very hard to do, tongue in cheek. But um, there's a trade-off to some of that right and so what we decided was what's the most efficient way for for investors to do this it's through equities but we wanted to focus on upstream equities equities that are as close to the natural resource as possible and are not being eroded by that downstream through the um, through the supply chain so those are the two key points to it last thing i would mention on it it has had per- fabulous performance over its uh over decade life and You're right, it has doubled in almost, uh, I think it's 12 to 18 months. The best part of GUNR right now is that it's also allowing you to diversify your income stream. It's yielding over 3%. It's at 3.1 right now, which is well over the 10-year treasury. And so you're able to hit income targets as well as hedge against inflation. It's just a fantastic product, and it's positioned really well right now.
2: Well, Michael, really enjoyed the conversation this week. I I, I thought fantastic insight into an area clearly most investors are thinking about right now with with these uh, inflation concerns. Thank you for joining me.
5: Nate, thanks so much for having me. And last thing, I know we're up on time, but your previous guest said there's no rock stars or not enough rock stars in the ETF space. He failed to mention you, Nate. You are the rock star in the ETF space.
2: Hey, thank you. That was uh, Michael Natel, head of intermediary distribution at Northern Trust Asset Management.
0: Consider the health of your portfolio. The first ever mRNA ETF, MSGR, from Direction. These are the companies producing and commercializing vaccines, therapies, and delivery systems based on the revolutionary new world of mRNA technology. The mRNA ETF, MSGR, from Direction. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully
2: i'm now joined by christian magoon founder and ceo of amplify etfs who currently offers 15 etfs about four billion dollars invested that includes their most recent launch from earlier this month the Amplify Inflation Fighter ETF, ticker symbol IWIN, I-W-I-N. Christian is now on the line with me from Colorado. Christian, always great to connect. Thank you for joining me.
6: Hey, Nate, good to speak with you and uh, happy to be back on the show.
2: All right, so let's dive right in. Inflation's actually been the hot topic on the uh, podcast this week, and you did just launch this Inflation Fighter ETF, it's actively managed, uh, owns a mix of stocks and commodities that could benefit from inflation. Give us the details here. How, how does the ETF go about doing that?
6: Yeah, so this is an actively managed ETF that dynamically allocates between a mix of stocks and commodities that you know, seek to benefit from rising prices or inflation. Uh, you know, there's so many choices out there, Nate, on how you invest to hedge against or benefit from inflation uh you know do you buy you know uh, mining stocks do you hold uh commodities uh, which commodities do you own um well i win uh as an inflation fighter etf really does the work for you uh through an active managed approach it's going to own a basket of stocks so everything from gold miners to land development companies commodity REITs home builders all these types of businesses that are built on access to scarce assets. It's going to allocate between those as well as the actual underlying commodities in the form of commodity futures or commodity ETFs. And we're talking about everything from agriculture, for example, corn to gold to silver, uh, industrial metals, copper. And then probably what makes it most unique is also the ability to allocate to cryptocurrency in the form of Bitcoin, uh, for example, uh, GBTC uh, in the current portfolio. So this is a one-kind-of-stop diversified way to dynamically own this big mix of stocks and commodities that should benefit from rising uh, inflation or rising prices over time. It's a convenient way to either capitalize and ride the inflation wave in a good way or potentially to hedge uh, existing portfolio exposure that may not do as well in an inflationary environment. So that's I win in a nutshell.
2: Yeah, you mentioned one stop. I'm looking at the the fact sheet here. This is a one-stop shop for potential inflation hedging. I mean, asset miners are 22% of the allocation, commodities 20%, land development 20%, home builders 16%, commodity REITs 12%, uh, real estate technology 11%. Uh, Up to 50% of the allocation, as you mentioned, can be in commodity futures or or ETFs. And as I look at the top holdings right now, you have GLDM, so uh, the Spider Gold mini-shares, 5%. PDBC, which I mentioned earlier in the podcast, that's a 4% allocation. GBTC, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, i got to ask you about that, 4%. Corn, the Tucrium the corn uh, futures ETF, 3%. So I think that really gives people a flavor for what this is holding. On the note of that Bitcoin exposure, so <laughs> you do currently own the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. As I understand it, you can invest up to 20% of the fund in CME-traded Bitcoin futures as well. I'd love to hear your take on Bitcoin as an inflation hedge because... From my perspective, there does seem to be a lot of debate out there on this right now, whether or not this this is actually a good inflation play.
6: Yeah, I think that's, you're spot on there. There's definitely, you know, debate. I mean, certainly uh, Bitcoin hasn't been around for 50 years to look back at previous inflationary environments to really see how it's done. Um, You know, we know recent history, um, really since, uh, Satoshi launched Bitcoin has been pretty favorable for Bitcoin returns overall, but you know, in this last little bit, uh, in the last few months, in terms of inflation uh, environments and returns for Bitcoin, it hasn't been that great. And you know, we think that you know, over time, scarce assets will do well in inflation. Bitcoin does uh, have natural scarcity uh, built into it. However, we think right now, kind of the macro environments, you know, rising rates. Um, some of the geopolitical tensions are making that data a little fuzzy in terms of whether or not Bitcoin can be a beneficiary from rising inflation. We think that over time it will be. Um, however, we know that macro uh, environments, macro trends can kind of uh, make short-term data funny. So you know, we do have exposure in IWIN to uh, uh, Bitcoin currently through uh, GBTC. Um, You know, we actually have more exposure right now to uh, gold, for example, as you just mentioned, and broad-based commodities. Uh, But it'll be a part of the portfolio. And we think um, as the data set gets longer, as we get kind of through some of these macro forces that are moving markets right now, um, that uh, Bitcoin will be proven to have um, be a beneficiary from rising inflation, again, due to its limited supply and the scarcity inherent in uh, Bitcoin.
2: No, I think that's well said. I mean, I think it's clear Bitcoin has gotten caught up in in the risk off trade here recently. And from my perspective, longer term, I do think the the biggest use case for Bitcoin is this digital gold, this this potential store of value. But Bitcoin is still early, right? And so I think to what you were saying, this is going to take a while. It still has to prove itself over long periods of times and and, and various market cycles. Um, Christian, on the note of Bitcoin, we, we have to talk about one of your most popular ETFs, the Amplify Transformational Data Sharing ETF ticker BLOCK. And I mentioned this last week. I'm sure you're up on it more than I am, but I now count sixteen sixteen blockchain or digital asset related etFs on the market. There are more filings with the s e c however we we do have to note you were first to market here. I, I'd love to hear what do you think about all the competition that's uh, now entered the space?
6: Yeah, so it's i mean it's I guess affirming to see that there's a lot of new products out there trying to build out that space and to your point. You know, we're getting closer to 20 different products that are following on to Block. You know, Block is the largest uh, in original kind of ETF focused in on blockchain, which then includes you know one application of blockchain technology, cryptocurrency. You know, about a billion dollars in AUM, and um, you know it is actively managed, so it distinguishes itself. A, a, a Quite a fair amount from the index based products out there that may only be able to adjust their portfolio once a month or once a quarter or even twice a year. Um, you know, the management team uh, behind Block, Toroso Investments, Mike Venuto and Dan Weisskopf have done a fantastic job, you know, managing Block since 2018 and have really set um, the portfolio apart. Um, you know, obviously, this is not just cryptocurrency. It's also blockchain. So they've been able to own a variety of different types of companies. It's a play on blockchain technology, which uh, we think will uh, be more well-known uh, or continue to be developed outside of cryptocurrency in the next, you know, three to five years. Um, you know, Block's been able to do some really innovative things, whether that's participate in IPOs, own convertible debts. Uh, we were one of the first, I think, the, actually the first blockchain ETF to own uh, Bitcoin indirectly through GBTC. I think we're the only blockchain and maybe one of the only ETFs in the industry that actually own the spot Bitcoin ETFs from Canada in our portfolio. Uh, we've done a lot of innovative things because we're dynamic, um, because it, we're actively managed, and you know, our track record, I think, speaks for itself. So you know, we continue to think the future is bright. Uh, and we're, you know, encouraged by so many other, uh, crypto and blockchain products coming out. Uh, block certainly benefits from increased awareness. And, uh, you know, we continue to see a bright future for, for that fund as kind of the flagship fund in that, uh, marketplace going back all the way to 2018, which in <laughs> some ways seems way a lot, long time ago, but other ways seems like just, uh, yesterday.
2: You mentioned the uh, Canadian spot Bitcoin ETFs. I'm going to say you cracked open the door, so I'm barging through right here. I do believe <laughs> you were the uh, the first ETF to own this. And I have to ask you, from my perspective, there's a little bit of irony in a U.S. blockchain ETF owning a Canadian spot Bitcoin ETF, yet the SEC won't approve a, a spot Bitcoin ETF here in the U.S. Do you have any quick thoughts on a, a U.S. Bitcoin ETF. I've covered this a lot recently, so we don't need to rehash everything here. But I, I would love to hear where you think the SEC stands on this right now and what, whether you're optimistic or, or pessimistic or, or maybe you have no idea.
6: <laughs> yeah, no. Well, it's funny because so we do own the Canadian spot Bitcoin ETFs in our block ETF, and that's not an insignificant you know amount or size of fund. And that really got the ability to do that about a year ago. But then we've recently launched our Inflation Fighter ETF, IWIN, where we weren't allowed to own the Canadian Bitcoin ETF in there. And we had to really go back to GBTC, but also ability to own Bitcoin futures. So, you know, I think the SEC is kind of conflicted here, and they're not exactly sure what they want to do. There's definitely some, I think, some pressure, certainly from Congress and from the industry, to, you know, be able to do what uh you know the canadian regulators have allowed canadian etf providers to do and you know certainly we've seen cracks in their willingness to uh have u.s investors kind of access that um you know and so it's kind of a weird um, place to be as a product company when at you know six months after you are able to do something the sec says well we don't want you to do something so uh, there's a little bit of lack of clarity there i mean ultimately to to me, as a you know ETF sponsor, you know we're seeing, you know, was it a 1.7 billion dollar alone uh, Canadian spot Bitcoin ETF function appropriately? Use the same benchmark as uh, the futures based ETFs in the U.S. Um, you know, use some of the same pricing data sources. Uh, you know, I think it's just a matter of time before it comes here in the U.S. Uh, the SEC seems to love and be infatuated with GBTC. They'll they'll let fund providers buy GBTC any day, all day. Hence, you know our ownership in several of our funds. So, you know, I would think GBTC has a little bit of the inside track to be the first um, spot Bitcoin ETF and a conversion. Um, you know, we'll see what happens, but um, I really would like to see an equal playing field for uh, product sponsors um, in North America to be able to, you know, list p- products that really, I think, uh, have some great features and benefits for investors, whether that's, you know, eliminating premium or disc- discounts, maybe having lower fees, uh, you know, tracking the price of, of Bitcoin uh, more specifically and not being caught up in backward- backwardation and contang- contango or roll costs. So, You know, I think the writing's on the wall here. Uh, I just think that, you know, the right amount of um, uh, industry and congressional uh, dialogue with the SEC will end up uh, getting them to really see the light and not be caught up in maybe some legacy preferences they have for maybe the futures market.
2: All of that is extremely well said. I I couldn't agree more. I'm not going to delve into any of those because those hit on a bunch of my hot button topics. And if I get back on my soapbox, then this segment will be over. (laughs) We don't have time. Hey, by the way, I did see that uh, Amplify filed for a decentralized finance and crypto exposure ETF in September. Are are you able to speak to that at all? or, Or are you in a quiet period right now? I was just curious. I saw that filing
6: out there. Yeah, yeah, so we are in a quiet period and really don't have any update to share at that at this point. Um, But we'll let you know if things uh, start to percolate
5: on that.
2: No, I appreciate that. Just interesting. It looks like that can hold the equity securities uh, issued by companies in the DeFi marketplace. So miners, infrastructure, uh, companies involved in the development of DeFi applications, and then uh, investment instruments that have a high correlation with the price of cryptocurrencies. So highly correlated companies, Bitcoin futures, ETFs, GBDC, we were just talking about, Canadian spot Bitcoin ETFs, certainly one I'll be keeping my eye on. Christian, just a couple minutes left. Let's close with your most popular ETF, which I think this might surprise some people. So you have a lot of very interesting ETFs on the market, but your most popular is the Amplify CWP Enhanced Dividend Income ETF, ticker symbol Devo, D-I-V-O. Assets in this have quadrupled over the past year. Uh, I, I guess two quick questions here that you can probably combine into one answer. So, uh, number one, what exactly does this hold? And then number two, why do you think this is resonating with investors? I'm guessing those two are uh, related.
6: Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting and Amplify because, as you said, we have 15 funds, and we're known, you know, risk originally for a lot of our thematic funds. But, um, you know, we do have some pretty interesting core funds. I mean, Black Swan getting a lot of interest here with some of the geopolitical uh, tensions. But Devo is another fund that we have, over a billion dollars, and believe it or not, actively managed. Uh, we have a fair amount of index and actively managed funds. This is really a blue-chips, uh, dividend-paying portfolio. It's companies that tend to be a little bit more value-oriented than growth-oriented, actively managed by capital wealth planning. They're an asset management firm out of uh, uh, Naples, Florida, who uh, also run an SMA in the same strategy. This is a five-star ETF. And imagine this, Nate, you can buy a blue-chip basket of of companies that pay dividends. The manager has the ability to t- tactically write covered calls to increase income, hence the Enhanced Dividend Income moniker. And so this blue-chip basket of securities is yielding 4.7%. So that's partially dividend income, partially option income from writing covered calls. So. Uh, we think why it, the fund is resonating is the track record is outstanding. Again, five star rated. It's blue chip with a tilt towards value stocks, which as you know are coming back and are being recognized more by the market. And then getting an income stream of 4.7%. Uh, it's a monthly paid uh, ETF, so kind of hits many of the boxes that I think people are looking for in today's markets. Also, you know, it has some cushion against. Um, you know, market volatility, not only because of its value tilt uh, and its tilt towards quality, but then also the uh, ability to write covered calls, so uh, that helps in kind of downward trending markets. So, yeah, Devo's a uh, you know uh, uh, actively managed ETF with a 55 basis point expense ratio, uh, one of the lowest expense ratios in that kind of covered call space as well. Uh, Believe it or not, a lot of the index-covered call ETFs are more expensive than this ETF. So it also has some uh, nice pricing uh, uh, advantages, we think, uh, relative to some of the competition.
2: Yeah, Tom Leiden of ETF Trends and I were talking about this earlier. I think advisors and investors are looking for some different types of exposure in in the traditional 60-40 portfolio than what they have had previously. Clearly, we're in a changing environment here, and perhaps investors don't want to be is exposed to growth stocks. Maybe they do uh, you know, want to find some alternative ways to generate income. So it makes sense to me that an ETF like this is uh, resonating. But, Christian, we're going to have to leave it there. Congrats on the success of Devo. Congratulations on the launch of iWin and, and all the continued success amplifies. having. You know that I love to see it. Uh, thank you for joining me this week.
6: Thanks, Nate, and look forward to seeing it at the next ETF conference in Florida, sir. Yeah,
2: look forward to that. That was Christian Magoon, founder and CEO of Amplify ETFs. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. At this time, I want to thank iShares. If you would like to learn more about iShares sustainable ETFs, you can visit iShares.com sustainable. Next week, I'll be joined by Direction's Dave Mazza. We're going to discuss investing in disruptive technology through thematic ETFs. And then Jay Hatfield, founder and CEO of Infrastructure Capital Advisors, will cover several ETFs, including an equity income ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.